Uh, good morning, everybody. My name's John, for those of you who don't know me. I'm one of the guys that's on the preaching team here at Philida Bible, and my family and I are delighted to call this our church family, our church home, our church community, and we've been doing so for about the last year or so. I'm honored to get to open God's Word with you today, and I'll be speaking from the book of Zephaniah, and if you uh, need to find it, it's on page 788 in the Bible in front of you. And speaking of which, we, we love God's Word here, and we want everybody to have access to God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible, take the one in front of you and put your name in it, call it your own, take it home. So have you ever played the game, Would You Rather?, it's a game where you ask folks to compare and contrast uh, either two very desirable or sometimes equally undesirable pathways. It's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure quiz. So things like, would you rather be the best player on a losing team or the worst player on a winning team? It's a tough one, right? Each has its dirty game to play with you. Would you rather live without a telephone or television? This might have a generational thing here, you know. <laughs> or how about this one? Would you rather be able to run incredibly fast or jump incredibly high? Kind of a silly question, right? Or maybe it's more uh, philosophical that might get your juices flowing. Would you rather end hunger or end hatred? Before I show you the last one, let me set it up just a little bit. Let's say you've been at work and you've been uh, very challenged in your day, whether that's at home or somewhere where you work outside the home, and you come home and you're ready for some downtime, and you walk in the front door, would you rather listen to sirens or singing? Well, that's a weird question, John. Why would you, why would you ask that? That's, those aren't equally desirable. One's very desirable. Of course, we'd rather hear singing when we got home rather than, oh, I don't know, two children fighting. Maybe you've heard that. I know I have. <laughs> well, uh, Zephaniah talks about how we can follow a couple of different pathways, and we'll be talking about that today. One leads to curse, and one leads to blessing. They're very different destinations. One's very desirable, and the other is highly undesirable. And it has everything to do with pride and humility. In fact, those are the two pathways. And I want to start with a quote from William Law that I hope, if you don't listen to anything else I say today, I hope you'll consider his words. See, William Law was a priest in England, and he was born in the late 1600s. And he wrote a bunch of essays. Uh, one of his essays was called The Spirit of Prayer. And this is what he wrote. And he captures these two different pathways and two different destinations quite well. Evil can have no beginning but from pride and no end but from humility. The truth is this. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Under, under the banner of truth, give yourself up to the meek and humble spirit of Jesus. Humility must sow the seed, or there can be no reaping in heaven. There is no other door 
into the sheepfold of God. Don't look at pride only as an unbecoming temper, nor at humility only as a decent virtue. One is death, and the other is life. One is all hell, and the other is all heaven. You see, humility leads to blessing. However, pride, it turns out, is this arrogant attitude that leads to a host of other sin in our lives. And it's deceptive, it's destructive, and it manifests itself in so many different ways. And it silences the good news of Christ's love in our lives. It literally destroys relationship vertically, that is, with our Father. And it kills relationship horizontally as well, that is, with each other. So Zephaniah talks about these two pathways and their respective destinations. And he's one of the so-called minor prophets, not because what he had to say was minor, but because of uh, the length of his uh, prophecies. It's only three chapters. It's a quick read, and I recommend you do read it. Zephaniah wrote warning God's people of this coming wrath and judgment. And like other prophets, he uses this stunning imagery to relay his messages. In it, he vividly describes these two pathways that lead to two very different destinations. And it contains some of the most horrifying images of sudden destruction you can find anywhere in the Bible. It also contains some of the most intense images of profound blessing as well. And this idea of path of the path to pride leading to destruction and the path of humility leading to blessing or life. In it, he writes about this thing called the day of the Lord. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. And I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Here we see how complete God's judgment is and how absolutely intense the day of the Lord is to be. It's going to be an absolute clean sweep. You might remember when God judged the earth in the flood, Noah's flood. Well, this is going to be way worse. This includes not only men, women, and children, animals, but right down to the fish of the sea. He's simply going to sever mankind from the earth. And he continues, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Does this sound like good news? I do find it really interesting, though, that he describes the sound of the day of the Lord in great detail. The day of the Lord is to be loud and bitter, crying, trumpet blasts, the sound of war, devastation, anguish. 
Has everybody here seen a war movie or at least a clip of war activity on like the news? Of course you have. And you know, one of the things that sticks out to me about when I see something like that is the sound of war. It sounds awful. Bitterness, distress, battle cries, crying. Those sounds of war haunting. For example, the the peace-piercing wail of an air raid siren. Everybody knows what that sounds like, right? That makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up every time I hear it, and I've never even been through an attack. During World War II, the Nazis launched literally thousands of these things. These were early cruise missiles, uh, and they're called V-1 bombs. The V stood for Vergeltungwaffe, say that five times fast, (laughs) which stood for, that, that means vengeance weapon. And they launched these primarily at Southeast England, and it was part of their terror bombing campaign and these ordinances, they were powered by that thing on the back. It's a, jet, a pulse jet engine, and it made this sound. It would pulse about 50 times a minute. And it made this distinctive sound. And they, were, they generated this ominous sound, and they were called buzz bombs. The sound was described as terrifying, a harbinger of doom. And it generated great psychological distress. That distinctive engine, that sound would cut off at the last second, right before the bomb exploded. See, civilians and soldiers, would you could hear them coming, and, but you wouldn't know where they were going to land. I can only imagine the feeling of utter helplessness as one of these things came at you. Or perhaps you know about the JU-87 dive bombers that they used in the same war. These were a big part of the Nazi Blitzkrieg, and they were responsible for their air superiority, primarily on the Russian front early in the war. They would mount these propeller-driven sirens on the front near the wheels, and these were called Jericho trumpets. You might remember that from Joshua and his men marching around the city of Jericho at the Lord's command and sounding their trumpets, and the walls fell. These sirens on these planes, they put there intentionally, and they produced this piercing wail that was used to pummel enemy morale and enhance the intimidation factor of bombing runs. This sound was kind of their trademark. You see, sound has destructive power, It can be psychologically devastating. And when you heard either one of these war machines coming at you, I'm betting that the only thing on your mind was that I need to find a place to hide. I need some shelter. I'm going to leave this point about sound for just a minute, and I'll come back to it in a little while. Zephaniah, he continues to describe the day of the Lord I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the, the day of the Lord is orders of magnitude worse than those relatively modern war examples that I gave you. His day will have worldwide impact. Not just destruction on a relatively small geographic scale. The description here is that there are literally, literally some folks that are at war with God, at war with the Creator, and he tells us that money will not buy our way out. This will be the final exam. The day of reckoning. The day of the Lord. So what, what brought this on? What happened to make the Lord burn with anger so intense that he's going to literally wipe everything off the planet? Sin. It says right there in verse 17, they sinned against the Lord. So God's righteous wrath and judgment is the result of, of our sin. And that sin often comes in the form of or is caused by pride. And pride has really no place in God's economy. Pride is defined as a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether I'm thinking it or acting it out. And pride is this major problem for us. Pride is sin because it leads us to glorify ourselves rather than God. And it's often a seed, a, a catalyst for a host of other sin. It's, it leads us to serve ourselves. It leads us um, to live for ourselves and to trust ourselves, all to our own demise. You remember that God commanded that we have no other gods before him. That's the very first of his Ten Commandments, right? And there's a reason that Solomon, arguably the wisest men to live on earth, warns us in Proverbs that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, Zephaniah warns us about pride in many places, but I'm just going to point out a couple this morning. In Zephaniah 2.15, he says, This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. Tim Keller, he's a pastor at Redeemer Church in New York. He, he said, there's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. <laughs> and Zephaniah tells us here of a people that have that very problem, but it's, it's even more serious than just being less interesting. This is actually referring to the city of Nineveh, which perhaps you remember from the book of Jonah. They were so self-absorbed, so self-reliant, that they truly think they're self-sufficient. They're so preoccupied by themselves, in fact, that they would dare to say, I am, and there is no one else. Perhaps you recall in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks God what his name is. And what was the reply he got? God said, I am. God's name is I am. And here, the people of Nineveh are using it in reference to themselves. 
In other words, they're putting themselves on his throne. And really, what's happening here, they're claiming to be autonomous, masters of their own destiny. They incorrectly think that they get to determine their own reality. Those silly Ninevites. How prideful they can be, right? I'm so glad I'm not like one of them. (laughs) Of course, you heard it. I can find evidence in my own life where I put myself on God's throne, and I'm pretty sure you can too. Perhaps you can relate. I've caught myself not living out God's calling to love one another quite as well as I should. We say, I am to God. We say, I am to our spouses, to our kids, our co-workers, our parents. And we do it in a bunch of different ways. One way, I'm neglectful. My job, my comfort, my desire, my needs, that's the priority, right? I am important. I have status. I was at a public meeting here just a few weeks ago, and we were introducing ourselves uh, to a bunch of folks, and one of the guys actually said this. Let's see if I can get it right. He said, he introduced himself that he had this position of status. It's a really good thing I'm here. You should get to know me. And you could just feel it and go out in a room like that. People reacted to it just like that. Some other ways. I'm too busy. I'm comfortable. I'm better than you. That's that comparison game that we love to play with other people. If, if I think I'm better than you, then I deserve certain privileges. And if I'm worse than you, then it makes me strive to be seen like I'm good enough. I need to be accepted by you. Well, both of those are distortions of pride, thinking about oneself too much. And I may be so oblivious to those character flaws that I simply cannot or will not be corrected. I insist on justifying myself. In other words, I am right. I am defensive. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Have you ever had to deal with somebody who just won't listen to you? Someone who doesn't trust what you're saying, even though it's for their own good? Have you ever been that person? I know I have. I've been that guy with other people, and I know I've been that way with God at times, and I've painted myself into many corners over the years. We're sick and afflicted with this disease and its root, pride. Trusting the Lord to correct us is how we draw near to our God. And pride would lead us to justify ourselves rather than to trust in Him to correct us. But before you think that this message is all doom and gloom, there's some really good news of hope in Zephaniah. In fact, he gives us some clues about the remedy for this condition. There's another path. There's this other destination. Tim Keller again said, if you you want to change your behavior, change what you worship. Zephaniah 2.3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. 
Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So this other pathway leads to a hiding place, a shelter from the wrath of God. Don't you find it interesting, though, that he, he addresses the humble? Did you notice that? Seek the Lord, all you humble. Why doesn't he say, seek the Lord, everybody? Why isn't he speaking to everyone? I did a lot of deep theological research on this one. He doesn't direct it to everyone because it ain't going to happen. He knows who's going to hear that message and who isn't. And if our hearts are hardened by pride, we simply will not hear him. It's humility, not pride, that is rewarded in God's economy. That's because humility leads us to place our worship where it belongs, on him rather than us. And he's doing this to create for himself this holy people that have been purified from pride and they're on the correct path, headed in the right direction to the right destination. Zephaniah 3, 11 and 12, For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. See, he wants everyone to call upon his name. And one way to do that is to simply remove the ones that won't. I want us to notice something really important here, though. Who does this text say is doing the work? Does it say that on that day some of you will be okay because of the things that you did? No, it says that God is going to accomplish these things. He will remove some of the people. Further, who is it that he's removing? Proud people, haughty people, and who's being left? Humble people, lowly people, people that seek him. And this really shouldn't surprise us. We find it repeated in the Newer Testament as well. Jesus taught that the humble and the lowly, the ones that are able to receive instruction, that have a correct understanding of their status, those are the ones that will be blessed. Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can find this concept in many places throughout the Bible, and it can be boiled down to the fact that to be full of pride is to be God's enemy. 1 Peter 5, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I understand this. If, it's only if we are humble that we are able to open ourselves up and receive his grace. So I'd like to tell you a story about a friend. Come on, everybody knows what that's code for, right? <laughs> Actually, it is about a friend, but I'm in it too. So uh, I used to work up in Olympia, and four of us went to lunch one day, and we're all a bunch of fish biologists, so we have boats. And this one guy needed to work on his boat, and he needed some supplies from Boater's World. And Boater's World happens to be right next door to Petco in this particular location, and that becomes important later on in the story. 
so we go to lunch, we go into Boater's World, friends looking at fiberglassing supplies, and the four of us go back there, we find it. He's trying to pick things out though, so we go wandering around the store looking at various things. And I come back, and I'm checking on my friend just in time for the clerk to walk up to my friend, throw his arms up in the air and say, great, you stepped in it. And you look down, and he had indeed stepped in it, a canine landmine <laughs> from the next door Petco. Somebody had come over and left a present. So, of course, we can't miss uh, an opportunity to harass our friend. We were hooting and hollering, having a great time making fun of our friend. And I was uh, one of the leaders of that. <laughs> we were having so much fun until I looked down. <laughs> That's right. I realized that I, too, had stepped in it. And I had tracked it all over the place as well. So isn't this just like us? We are so quick to point out the chip on somebody else's shoe as we merrily track, out our, track our own mess around the, the place. So in, in Luke chapter 18, I'll begin in verse 10 of this familiar story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you, I'm not like those other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Did you count all those I statements? Not the good kind of I statements. There's five of them in there. But the tax collector standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that the Pharisee is focused on himself and how he's being seen by other people. The only thing about other people he's concerned with is comparing himself. That's another way of saying, I'm desperate for attention, or I am quick to find your faults. He wants to make certain that everyone knows that he has earned his way. The tax collector, on the other hand, he doesn't even seem to be aware that anyone else is in the room. He doesn't care what others think of him. He's focused on a God that can save him and nothing else. He knows who he is, and he knows who God is. He's acutely aware that he can't earn God's favor, and he simply throws himself on God's mercy because he realizes that he simply he has no other option, no other play. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, there, there are these two paths, two destinations. One is proud, The other is humble. One is doomed, and the other is justified. So I promised you that I'd come back to this idea of sound. Only now, the sound is not a curse, but it's it's a blessing. 
It's a sound of peace and harmony. Zephaniah 3.17 is a stunning contrast to the descriptions of the day of the Lord that we read earlier in the chapter. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Back in Zephaniah 1.14, that described the sound of the day of the Lord as bitter. Remember the screams of anguish and war? Those are gone. There's no more air raid siren here. There's no more buzz bomb. Singing. Quieting you with his love. It's mind-boggling, actually, if you think about it. But this sounds like a really good destination. This sounds like a great shelter, a really good place to hide. And not only that, it's a destination of true blessing. So what, is, what does that path look like? Humility. And, and what does humility look like? It looks like what William Law said, surrendering, giving yourself up to Jesus, seeking his meek and humble spirit depending on him to save you. Because Jesus is the one. He is the hiding spot. He's the mighty one who saves. He's the only one who can remove the judgments that we deserve. So God's word found in the prophet, all the prophets, it contains such vivid images. I want us to pause and think as we prepare for God's table how do, you, how do you process this verse in your mind? How do you envision in your thinking what's being said here? He will exult over you with singing. This truth that God loves you who are found in him so much that he will sing over you. Let, let that sink in as we prepare. I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your character, your holiness, your love. I thank you for your word, the way it makes it clear that the only path to salvation, to this hiding place, is in seeking your son, Jesus. I ask you, Lord, that you give each of us a humble and teachable spirit and reveal to us our true need to seek you. Show us who you truly are. Help us to surrender to the meek and humble spirit of Jesus Christ, your Son. I ask this because of and in the name of Jesus. Amen.